Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC podcast. On Wednesday morning last week, a 28-year-old woman named Sally Hafez walked into a branch of the Blom Bank in Beirut with a toy gun and a plan. The plan was to lock the door with a chain enter the bank and say, no one gets out until I get my money. What she did that day made headlines around the world. And this week, she spoke to us from hiding with the help of our colleague, Rasha Shahada. I didn't want them to see me a girl and think, she's just a girl. We can sweet talk her or maybe someone could just slap her away. Sally had also brought with her a can of gasoline mixed with water, and she started pouring it on the ground. I thought that I could get a substance that smells like gasoline and threaten to set myself on fire if they don't give me my money. I wanted to scare them. She'd walked in with a couple of friends and activists. When my friend locked the door, people, bank employees, scrambled. So I remembered that I had the gun and I used it. Things just happened, like a dream. I had the handbag in my hand and I took the gun out and shot it and I made that sound. The manager was scared. After being arrogant the day before, saying, there's nothing I can do for you, suit yourself. No one in the branch knew that the gun wasn't real. But Sally says she told the customers that she wasn't there to hurt them, that she wouldn't hurt an aunt. I'm here for my sister's money to treat her. And I will do this if it costs me my life. Believe me, I will do it if it costs me my life. She says she wanted the bank to hand over $20,000. She needed the money to pay for her sister's cancer treatment, and she threatened to shoot the manager if he refused. What followed was an hour of negotiation. And in the end, Sally got what she wanted, not the full amount she was asking for, but $13,000. Everyone was at the main door, the one I locked. No one was there to pick me up, a car, a motorbike. I had the money in my hands. Have you ever seen a girl who did what I did return home? It's like I only took a bar of chocolate and ran back home. This was not a regular bank robbery. The money belonged to Sally and her family. It had been sitting in her bank account, but she couldn't access it because right now in Lebanon, people are only allowed to take out $400 a month. 
And Sally isn't the first person to try and withdraw their money by force, but her story's gone viral. And since then, many others have done the same. Today on the show, we're talking about the ongoing financial crisis in Lebanon and what's driving people like Sally to take matters into their own hands. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Walking into the bank with a fake gun wasn't Sally's first plan. She'd actually tried repeatedly to withdraw her savings the normal way. My sister got sick about six months ago. She was diagnosed with head cancer, thus the need for an operation that costs about $20,000. The bank refused to give us the money. Recently, things with her sister had taken a turn for the worse. My sister has lost hope. While I changed her, she told me, I want to tell you that it is my will that you raise my three-year-old daughter when I die. Because she loves you, and you would be kinder to her than, God forbid, a stepmom or someone from her grandfather's household. Hearing this felt like someone poured boiling water over me. At the time, I kissed her head and I told her, I promise you, I promise you on my honor, you will travel, you will be treated, you will stand on your feet again and you will be the one to raise your daughter. She started crying, and we both started crying together. And then I slept. Sally let a group called the Depositors Outcry Association know about her plan. The group's been advocating on behalf of Lebanese people who want access to the money in their own bank accounts, and she knew some of the activists personally. A few of them and a lawyer from the group went into the bank with her that day. And right outside, others were staging a protest in support of Sally. One of them was Ibrahim Abdullah. So Ibrahim, we just talked to Sally, and Sally is just one of the people who's pulled up to a bank with a gun, uh, mostly fake, in some cases real, and demanded that the bank hand over their savings. Tell us one or two stories of other people who have also tried to do this. Okay, for example, the guy called Bassam, a guy called Bassam, Sheikh Hussein. For me, I, I, I will always use the term who went to liberate his deposit, not attacking or robbing the bank. He went to liberate his deposit before uh, a month back, like in August. Uh, Bassam had had a similar story as Sally. Uh, His father uh, had uh, a serious uh, illness, and Bassam uh, wanted this money for, for the treatment of his father. Okay, and he he went to the bank a few times, and the bank manager refused. And after uh, asking the the bank many times, he was maybe angry to the point he couldn't stop himself from uh, getting a a gun. And Bassam went uh, went to the bank, 
and he took the staff as hostages. An armed man is holding employees hostage at a federal bank in Lebanon's capital, Beirut. He's demanding his own money and threatening to burn down the bank. Security forces have not yet entered the building. This man is saying he wants his money, 210,000 US dollars. He's been visiting the bank in recent days, demanding $5,000 in order to be able to pay for his father's hospital bill. He doesn't have a He did not harm anyone. Uh, but he wanted his money, and after uh, a long negotiation, he succeeded. Uh, after that, uh, he surrendered to the security forces. He was arrested for two uh, or three days, and then the bank did not file any case against him, and, uh, and they set him free. I mean, that sounds pretty similar to Sally's story. Exactly. And sounds sounds pretty similar to a lot of the the accounts of other instances that I've read. So, um, and, and it looks like this trend has been picking up steam, right? And more and more people are trying to do this. After days of pleading for access to his savings, Abed Subra took matters into his own hands. Armed with a pistol, he entered a bank in the Lebanese capital of Beirut and sparked a standoff that would last for hours. They said they don't want to pay. They don't want to pay, and I'm not leaving until they do. They need to figure it out. Tell the guys they don't want to pay, and I'm not leaving from here. The break-in was one of five so-called depositor heists across Lebanon on Friday alone. And I know it's gotten bad enough that banks actually closed down for a few days this week, right? Now, banks in Lebanon will shut down for three days next week after security concerns escalated. This follows incidents of depositors storming banks, holding employees hostage and forcibly demanding to withdraw their own savings. How many of these holdups or, you know, people people trying to liberate their funds, as you say, how many of these instances have there been so far that you know of? We had uh, one case happened like a year back. Uh, the guy called Abdullah Sai, and another, uh, the second one was uh, with uh, Bassam Sheikh Hossein. Sally was the third, and maybe Sally because she's a lady. Many after that were encouraged to do the same. Wow. So why are people having to resort to this? Can you explain? why they can't withdraw as much money as they want to from their own bank accounts? They can't because due to the uh, crisis in Lebanon, we have a severe crisis because of our currency lost 90% of its value. The bank started to impose strict controls on the deposits. Uh, There was no capital control issued by the government. So uh, even if you, uh, you want to withdraw, it will be less than the black market value. I have a limit of $400 in cash I can withdraw while I have to spend on uh, electricity and insurance and healthcare and schooling. Government is not giving us any, any help, uh, any assistance. So we have to yeah. spend on everything and we can't withdraw from our account. So that situation led to what happened. People were frustrated and they started attacking bank, and especially those who, has, uh, who had uh, serious issues in their uh, life, like uh, Sally's case. 
just to summarize for people, because I think this might be a little bit confusing, the banks say you can only withdraw dollars after they've been exchanged into Lebanese pounds, but the rate that they're giving is much lower than the black market rate, right? And you can only withdraw a maximum of $400 a month. Exactly, exactly. And and how long how long has this been going on? Since October 2019. So, so you know, it's almost three years. I think it's worth pausing here and taking a quick look at how Lebanon got to this point. This national financial meltdown is decades in the making. To understand it, you have to go back to Lebanon's reconstruction period after its civil war ended in 1990. To rebuild, the country was using money mainly from tourism, foreign aid, and it was also getting a lot of financial support from Gulf Arab states. I believe that during the reconstruction of Beirut, it was the single largest urban renovation project on earth. And what Lebanon witnessed over the last 10 years is sort of a facelift of everything. It's a city that destroyed itself five times. So again and again, Beirut... Another main source of income was remittances, money Lebanese people living abroad were sending back home. But over time, a lot of this external help dried up mostly because of political instability throughout the region and as Gulf countries pulled back from helping Lebanon because of what they saw as the growing influence of Iran. Meanwhile, the country went deeper and deeper into debt because of what many experts say was consistent financial mismanagement and excessive spending on the wrong things. Over two decades, money flowed from citizens to enriched bankers. And as the currency crisis unfolded, they extinguished any hopes of a recovery by blocking reforms and restricting access to money. And despite the controls in place to make sure money doesn't leave the country, $6 billion has been smuggled out. Astonishingly, it's estimated some $29.6 billion could seep out of the country this year. My name is Ian Urbina. I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. If they got within 800 meters, that is when we would fire warning shots. Murder, slavery, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. Men have told me that they've been beaten with stingray tails, with chains. If you really want to understand crime, start where the law of the land ends. The Outlaw Ocean. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. In 2019, the year after the government failed to implement some long-awaited reforms that would have helped Lebanon get foreign aid and boost its economy, the country erupted into protests. The protests were triggered by a proposed tax on WhatsApp, but they grew into something way bigger. Tens of thousands of people took to the streets, calling for the downfall of the entire economic and political power structure. After that, there was even less foreign money coming in, dollars were leaving, and the banks started running out. For two weeks, they shut down. And when they reopened, without the government's approval, they introduced the capital controls that Ibrahim is talking about. 
So it's almost for three years. So even if people, they had some savings at home other than the banks, they lost all their, sa- all, uh, their savings and uh, they left uh, now with no other choice uh, than uh, get going to the banks and, uh, uh, and asking their, uh, for their uh, money from their deposits. How have people been coping with the inability to withdraw cash up until this point? Yeah, you know, some people, okay, they they had some savings at home. Like I heard from Sally, she had to sell her gold, for example. uh, On the personal level, I sold a piece of land. Okay, so so we, we started selling our households. Okay, so and we have money stuck in the banks. What to do in this case? Many are begging in the banks, but not everyone uh, wants to go and beg for his own money. And so some of these people have been coming to your group uh, telling you that they're planning to do this, right? And uh, how often has that been happening? Every day we are getting calls from depositors who needs who asking support i mean uh, they want to go to get to the banks to get their money and we are always sometimes trying to calm them because we are against violence against using violence uh, all what we need is our rights when they approach you and they tell you to do it you try to advise them not to do it? Exactly. We, we try to, to understand the situation, talk to the bank. Uh, you know, we don't want uh, any mistakes. We don't want uh, violence. Yeah. But when someone is determined to do this, what kind of support does the Depositors Outcry Association offer them? Okay, we can protest him, like what happened with Bassam. We have lawyers, for example, our lawyer uh, go with him to the court, uh, try to defend him. So what we do for them, we send our lawyers to support them in the court. I'm curious, though, like you're saying you, you're saying you, you know, you don't support violence, you advise people not to do this, but do you worry that you're offering support to these people could encourage others to try this and that there's potential for things to kind of escalate and and get violent here uh, you know we are not actually our aim is not to encourage others to do it our aim is to push the government the central bank the banks uh, association to sit all together and to put a uh, fair capital control law. That's our aim. We don't want uh, to to get in in trouble with the banks. We don't want that. We want to find solution because uh, attacking banks is not a solution because not everyone can has the courage or the force or the capability to attack banks. But everyone who, who do it it can be a way of pushing the government to find solution. But I hope they don't ignore it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. So the, your group has declared a quote-unquote war on banks. What does that mean exactly? What do you have planned? Yes, it's a kind of cold war. Uh, I mean, a cold war is like if the banks will, will not try to find a solution for our situation, they will see more people attacking the banks. 
this is the war. Mm -hmm. But is that like a threat from the group? Or are you just saying that this is what is going to happen? <laughs> you know, I, I understand because uh, maybe in, in the international, uh, you know, societies will not understand that and they will consider it uh, as a kind of violence. But in Lebanon, they left us with no other choices. We are not a people who are asking for violence. We are uh, civilized people. We are educated. Who are the depositors? Depositors are uh, either uh, some uh, expats who lived uh, abroad all their life and, and uh, deposits are their own savings. The retired people who spend their life uh, to get this uh, this retirement, uh, to live a, a good life after that. So those are the depositors. They are not criminals. So banks has to sit and find solution. If they don't want to find solutions, okay, they left us with no other choices. Maybe if I was in a similar case like Sally, I, maybe I could do it. You know, can you imagine she has her sister... Uh, she has a serious cancer, brain cancer, and she, uh, what she needs is uh, treatment. She couldn't pay for her sister's treatment. Her sister was dying in front of her eyes, and she has money in the banks. She has to wait uh, watching her sister dying in front of her eyes. You're also in the situation, right? And what's stopping you from uh, doing something like this? To be honest, I'm in a very bad situation, but thank God that I don't have any illness, but I'm supporting my old parents. My father, 82 years old, my, my mother, uh, 75 years old. Both of them are getting medicines and I have to pay for that. I have a family. I was an expat. Okay, I was considered a, a millionaire, let's say, because I, my account was millions. Okay. And now I have nothing. Nothing. Mm. I have nothing, nothing to spend. But would you ever go into a bank with... Ah, I'm, with telling, a... I'm telling you why I did not uh, do it. The amount in my account is a, is a big amount. So I will not go to the bank to, to get 10000 and 20000 and $30,000. Okay, I don't want yeah. to do it. Yeah. I hope mm. they don't force me to do it. Mm. Because I told you we are not criminals. They are pushing us. So God forbid, if I have the same situation uh, like uh, Sally, maybe definitely I will do it. Just given how tense things are right now, where do you see things going from here? Are there any signs of things getting better? If the government will not find a proper solution, definitely things will go worse, not better. When the revolution started, the government had $33 billion in the central bank. And now they are begging the IMF to give them $3 billion. And the IMF asked the government uh, for uh, some reforms that can open the door for a $3 billion US dollar to help the country to overcome its economic crisis. But the IMF asking them to end uh, this wasteful spending 
and restructuring the energy section and a forensic uh, audit on the uh, central bank. At the same time, the IMF uh, is asking the government to put a uh, capital control law. But till now, there is no agreement between the government and the banks and even the depositors on a proper uh, capital control law. All what we ask, uh, we are asking at the moment is to get a fair capital control. Otherwise, things will become worse. Ibrahim, thank you so much for talking to me. Okay, I, I want just yeah. to add one thing. Okay, my name is Ibrahim Abdullah and I have millions in the bank. I'm ready. I'm fed up with this country. I'm ready to leave the country. I'm ready to go tomorrow to Canada and leave. And even if they can help me to get my money out, I'm ready to keep them, uh, to invest all my money in Canada, whatever I have. I'm productive. We are educated, me, my wife. Uh, we both have master's degrees and I'm ready to go starting tomorrow and leave in Canada and uh, I will forget about Lebanon, to be honest. So since I talked to Ibrahim, the banks have said that they're shutting down indefinitely because the spate of bank heists has made it too dangerous for them to stay open. And to wrap up, I want to go back to Sally for a second and her message to the banks. Make a plan. Instead of making plans to protect yourselves, make a plan to start giving people small amounts of their money, just enough to eat and drink at the least, Sally says that's the only way at this point that banks can prevent more crime and bloodshed. And that looking back, she has no regrets, that she's proud of what she did. I'm sure you want to ask me whether I am willing to turn myself in. For sure. I'm fearless. He who has a right is king, and I have a right. They're the ones who should be fearful of me. The Lebanese authority, the banks, everyone who took away our rights should be afraid of clean people who aren't taking sides. So before we go today, there is another story we're watching this week. That's the sound of the protests happening right now in Iran. Women have been burning their hijabs to protest the country's strict modesty laws, and they're calling for an end to the country's notorious morality police. This is the police unit that's in charge of enforcing Iran's interpretation of the Islamic code of conduct, including what women are allowed to wear in public. This all comes after the death of a 22-year-old woman in police custody last week. Police detained Masa Amini last Tuesday for allegedly wearing the hijab incorrectly. Shortly after, she was taken to the hospital in a coma, and two days later, she died. And police say it was a heart attack, but witnesses allege that she was beaten. 
In one video circulating online, you can hear protesters chanting, death to the dictator. In another, a woman dances in circles, holding her hijab, and then she tosses it into a fire. Even men are taking part in the protests, storming armored vehicles and pushing back riot police. And as women have been posting videos of themselves cutting their hair in solidarity with Amini and other forms of dissent are also going viral, the government's shut down the internet in parts of the country and blocked access to platforms like WhatsApp and Instagram. The UN has called for an independent investigation into her death, and the suspicious circumstances around it have prompted rare criticism of the morality police by some of Iran's leaders. Since the protests started last week, at least nine people have died. It's not the first time Iran has seen demonstrations against the morality police, an organization that's used force against women for decades. Back in 2017, a woman who'd become known as the Girl of Revolution Street inspired protests after she was arrested for tying her headscarf to a stick and holding it high above her head. Now, Masa Amini's name has become another symbol and the fight for women's freedom in Iran. But whether these protests are going to bring about real change, that is something we're going to keep watching. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer this week is Simi Bassi. Our sound designer is Graham McDonald. And our showrunner is Joyta Shangupta. We also had translation and additional production help from Rasha Shahada. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer and Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps new listeners find the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.